If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, it's Alden, the producer of Shut Up Evan. This episode was recorded remotely during quarantine. You might notice some changes in audio quality throughout the episode, but the content is just as good. So stay home, stay healthy, and enjoy the episode. On today's show, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 7 and All-Stars 2 contestant Katya. The celebrated drag entertainer talks about his early life growing up in Marlboro, Massachusetts. Ugh, that's a tongue twister. I remember getting sad and then wanting to stay sad. Like, I put on the blue lights and listen to a sad song over and over and over and just cry and love it. Money... Yeah, I made a lot of money on tour. It's so funny. I, I really don't feel comfortable disclosing the amount. And I don't know why. Maybe because I don't want to be labeled like a rich person. Because I've grown up hating rich people. Ego. It's, it's a tough thing because you really do think that you're important when people say it to you. You could go online and read hundreds of wonderful comments. Literally, people saying, You are the best person that has ever existed. And you can't internalize that because, of course, it's not true. And his friendship and creative partnership with Trixie Mattel. So I went crazy for a while. I mean, a lot of it was due to drugs. But bottom line is, like, she just kind of waited it out and forgave me. And that is, like really incredible because I don't really know what I would have done in her situation. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Rosskatz and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. Hi. We have reached uh, a big milestone for us. A huge milestone. Huge. We are finishing out the first season of Shut Up Evan today. This is the finale of season one. Yes, we love a season one finale. Exactly. And our guest, I think, is I'm super excited to have as our closer. Katya is one of my favorite drag queens, and the conversation is excellent. And it's definitely um, going out on a note of high energy, um, Mm -hmm. because Katya is, as anyone that knows her, and if you don't, you'll quickly learn, Katya is just a trip in the best best way. A trip to a destination I want to go. But before we talk about uh, Katya and and get into a little bit of uh, Drag Race, I wanted to ask you, you know, reflecting on these 18 episodes that we've had and this long journey that you and I have had together because really our journey with this podcast goes way back before episode one. Oh, yeah. There's an unaired pilot episode um, that's going to go up on our Patreon at some point that was taped 
months before the pilot that we ended up going with. And when that gets posted, it's probably it's probably going to be just as it was. So it'll be like, hey, this is the first episode of our podcast, but just roll with it. It's the unaired pilot. Reflecting on these first 18 episodes, I wanted to ask you, do you have a moment that sticks out for you um, as just being the most memorable or the most meaningful for you? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, well, I will say one thing. Making a podcast, even though ahead of time, everybody was like, it's more work than you think. Everybody thinks it's super easy because it's just audio. And even knowing that, and I was like, okay, you know, I, I do video editing. I do motion graphics. I know what it takes to do this stuff. So I was ready for a lot of work. But I think that doing it every single week, oh my God, it's so much work. So the whole season really blends together for me because it's just sort of like, and we've talked about this. It's like, as soon as we drop an episode on Tuesday morning, we are working on the next one. If you haven't already started working on the next one before that. Um, So it all kind of blurs together for me. But the one recording session that really stuck with me um, was the Larry Owens episode. Mm. Um, I think it's especially you should 100% revisit it now. Um, Larry talks about racism in the theater world. But I think like one thing that I walked away from in that episode, Larry was just as a guest was so open and vulnerable and honest. And I felt like the conversation that the three of us had was like a very much a heart to heart conversation. And I think you know, some of that we didn't air just because it was a little too heart to heart. But that was one that just like really resonated as like an, a, a, a moment of true human connection for me, because normally, um, you know, as we're doing the interviews, you're doing your thing and I'm I'll chime in every once in a while. But I just kind of sit there and listen and enjoy the interviews that happens as a spectator, essentially. But that was one where I, I really felt uh, a connection there. Yeah, that was a really, I, I remember when we finished the interview, I remember the three of us kind of needed needing to take a breath almost because yeah. it was just emotionally wrought in, in, mm-hmm. a, in, in, a, in a fabulous way. But it felt like mm-hmm. we had all sort of poured ourselves into that conversation. Yeah, it was nice because I think too, like him as a performer and a writer and a comedian, like he was invited us into his like, methods and craft and um his uh, like where that all comes from in ways that i think a lot of folks either are hesitant to do maybe in especially in kind of a quote-unquote like press pr interview setting um it was just really nice yeah it's very organic yeah just on the whole i'm so proud of the nuanced conversations we've been able to have with so many of these guests and really credit to so many of them with coming in here with an open mind and an open heart and being willing to share things about themselves that were either unknown or or willing to sort of be introspective and and, and on a microphone. You know, it, there's a difference mm-hmm. between uh, saying something and saying it when there's a microphone in front of you and knowing there's a, a permanence to it. And, you know, a, a good example would be in this last episode with Charisma Carpenter talking about how she wasn't sure if her career had ever recovered um, mm-hmm. from being fired, essentially, from the TV yeah. series Angel. And it was moments like that that you kind of stop in your tracks and you're like, wow, because you you hear the person revealing something that they didn't, 
come into the interview with the agenda of talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the moments that I think uh, are really special. And I just, yeah, I want to, gratitude to these 18 guests, especially the ones early on when it's like, they didn't know what they were walking into. You know, Christopher John Rogers, Cola Scola, Rose McGowan, especially, it's like, there was no podcast to show them. These days, I think we've had an easier time booking people because we can say, okay, listen to this to get a feel for it. But back then, that wasn't the case. Yeah, we didn't even have a trailer, I think, at that point. Yeah, it was very, very early into the process. Um, I do just want to say one thing about what you're talking about with like the learning experience of like what this all takes for people that don't know about sort of the intricacy of the editing process, which I was not even privy to the depths of this. There are so many things. There are whole chunks that get cut out, obviously, but there's also instances of like overlaps in us speaking over each other, myself and the guest or people that say, um, a lot, or, you know, a lot. And We go through that. And when I say we, I really mean Alden and Ryan. um, Go in with a fine-tooth comb and take those out. So we've had many instances where like a guest will come and say, wow, I sound so much smarter than I thought I did during the interview. And my first... Good. That makes me so happy because that's my that's my goal. But it's funny because it's like it just goes to show you like that the really, really when you're really good at this, as you and Ryan are, people don't notice. And Mm -hmm. I always think that's why it's so much it's so important that people start to understand the process of what an editor does and understanding the fact that someone like me and you and I have had this conversation offline, which is like I get the the my my voice is part of this show. My name is part of this show. I'm very much front loaded in terms of this process. But it is you and Ryan, but especially you who have been with the show from the very beginning and who just everything down to creating the social cards for the show to literally mm-hmm. going in and recording this up top and editing the up top, which is taped two days before the episode goes out. I mean, there's so many pieces to this. And I think sometimes I'll listen to it and I'll be like, this sounds so clean. It's just like we hit yeah. record and go. It's not that at all. I do want to add this little shout out, though, to Ryan specifically, because speaking of all of the edits that we do, the Raja episode, fun little fact, Mm. when we recorded, Raja had a smoke detector whose battery needed to be changed. So every like two minutes, it beeped. And Ryan had to go through that whole interview and clean up and take out the smoke detector beep. I felt so bad. So just in terms of the kind of things that happen on the edit side, that one was a particular headache. And interestingly, Katya, well, actually both Raja and Katya were smoking throughout the episode, but uh, Mm. fortunately Katya did not have a smoke detector present um, or else that would have for (laughs) sure been going off. I wish everyone could see just Katya sitting there smoking her cigarette in drag throughout this whole podcast. It just made the whole interview experience that much uh, more uh, fulfilling. I will, it'll be included in the like little social video thing that I put together, there will 100% be uh, at least her lighting and taking a puff of that cigarette. It's, but it was yeah. truly iconic. Red background, mm. red outfit, just chain uh, smoking yeah, chain as we're smoking. Oh my yes. God. I, nothing like watching a drag queen chain smoke. So we're super excited to end season one with Katya today. I just want to mention to people, we are going to take a break before season two begins, but I just wanted people to know Patreon subscribers specifically, Patreon content will continue. Like I said, we will be dropping the unaired pilot episode uh, featuring Mm -hmm. a very special guest that I know um, people will enjoy. And also I just did an interview with uh, Lady Gaga's choreographer, Richie Jackson, which will be going up on the Patreon. So just know... If you are currently a Patreon subscriber, you will continue to be fed. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, go on and get fed, sign up for our Patreon, and we'll be back with season two. 
Also, should we say like we were planning on doing this? This was like a planned end to a first season. Yes. I think originally we were going to do a couple more episodes, but given just the nature of ongoing quarantine and then the change in our national conversation, it felt like, oh, let's let's put the end here and do make this the finale um, as we are reassessing for season two, how to how to adjust for the times that we're in. But this was very much a planned scenario. Yes. So switching gears, my my go-to transition, switching gears uh, over to Drag Race. Um, we do have Katya on the show today. Uh, we've had several Rue Girls on the show, and each one has been such a wild ride just because um, it's really fun having people go back and recount this experience of this show that people like you and I are so invested in. And speaking on that investment, I kind of was thinking, you know, ahead of this uh, conversation, it's like we just wrapped up season 12 recently. So there are 12 seasons of Maine Drag Race. We're currently just began season five of All Stars. A.K.A. the season of Shea Coulee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but when you think back upon Drag Race and this remarkable impact that it's had, um, specifically on LGBTQ plus culture, uh, is there a moment for you that stands out on the show that's like, this was the moment... I knew Drag Race was for me. So I came, I came into Drag Race late. Season nine is when I started watching. Um, season 10, I think, was the first season that I watched from beginning to end as it aired. And I've gone back to watch all the seasons, though some I think I haven't seen every episode of. So I think for me, for a long time, Drag Race was just shorthand vernacular between queer folks and I was not privy to the references at all. So it's just this thing that I didn't understand and you know, it wasn't for me, I guess. Um, and I think that the moment though that flipped a switch was watching it for the first time in a bar and watching it with a packed to the brim bar of excited homosexuals and the fandom and the cheering and the excitement and just getting goosebumps at all of the right moments, it, it that kind of shifted it from, you know, it's just this reality show that all the gays like to something that was a little more powerful. I completely, completely agree. There's like something about looking around that room in those moments, especially when one of the girls in the show does like a death drop or something. Mm -hmm. um, and you look around the room and everyone's screaming. Or the like the jaws on the floor with who's in the bottom two and like oh shit my favorite's gonna go home this is catastrophic and feeling that energy yeah i think for me the moment that always stands out it's a smaller moment on the show but as i was sort of prepping for today i kept wanting to choose like a really iconic moment and be like that's the moment that i knew like when angina revealed that she was hiv positive on season one Th those are the moments that I think of, but the moment that really resonated the most for me in terms of like, just really putting me onto the show happened in season seven. It's like not even a, it's a throwaway moment, but it's Katya, who just happens to be our guest today, is sort of breaking down and really feeling like she isn't like doesn't belong in this competition. Her head is just not there. And Fame, Miss Fame, comes over to her in the workroom and sort of talks her down. And she says to her, and I'll always remember this quote, she says, you are loved, you are love. And not to get like too deep about it, but I always think about that quote because there, there's many things going on there, but like we hear this message often, uh, 
people, not just LGBTQ people, anyone, like, you know, we love you, you know, you, like, you are loved, like, affirming someone who's not, who's feeling down, just letting them know you are loved. I've heard that part of the messaging before, but the you are love aspect of it, at mm. the end, I always remember in that moment feeling like it's not about all of us uh, affirming you, because we can do that, and, and we will do that, but just know that it's inside of you. You are love. I, I love that. <laughs> um, and I just feel like that was a moment for me when I was like, this show is bigger than just um, these girls sharing their stories, which is a huge component of it. But it's also this queer bond, this queer sisterhood that comes from this art form of drag and that a lot of us can take away um, when we look at sort of like how... LGBTQ plus people don't always show up for each other. And uh, I think that's a great example of the power of when we do what it can mean. So anyway, with that. Well, I want to add something please. because I think that one interesting thing that Drag Race has done for me is it led me to Dragula, which is a show that I love to bring up as often as possible. Um, just because I think my reaction to that show has been so profound. The format is totally different. It's less do a quick reality show challenge and more this is the challenge, go home, spend a week, do the best artistic version of this challenge that you can do. And the looks and the performance and the messaging that happens in that show um, has been an expression of drag and different types of drag that aren't represented on um, Drag Race that I don't think I ever would have found had it not been for Drag Race first. It's sort of like by becoming this big, massive industry creating and defining show, it's sort of allowed these other explorations to bubble up as well. Completely. So that's been really cool. Yeah. It's like this, I hate calling it like a cottage industry because it's like, it's even yeah. bigger than that at this point. But it's like, as you're saying, it's like Drag Race is but an entry point in a larger cinematic mm -hmm. universe um, that has mm -hmm. been kicked open for so many people. And uh, there's now just so much to behold. And it's wonderful. Yep. It's all, it's LGBTQ plus talent and the celebration of that. Um, so with that, we'll turn things over. But I quickly just want to say a huge shout out to every single listener out there, whether you were tuning in from the very beginning, came on board because some celebrity you like was on, whether you have DM'd us with your feedback or- Whether you've DM'd me with your nudes. Yeah. Whether you've rated the podcast, reviewed it, um, what have you. Just a huge thank you. This um, I've said it before, but it's a labor of love, but- this can't exist without an audience. And I'm just, uh, yeah. can I speak on our behalf when I say we are incredibly grateful for all of you out there for giving this podcast a chance and sticking with it. Anyway, thank you all so much. Please enjoy our interview with the lovely, talented, and bizarre Katya. But first, can we do one last Meryl scream? Please. Okay. <laughs> The self-proclaimed sweatiest woman in show business, he first lit up television screens during season seven of RuPaul's Drag Race, where he collected the title of Miss Congeniality in 2015. A year later, he returned to the series All-Stars format, where he landed as a runner-up and cemented his place within the pantheon of Drag Race excellence. He has had starring roles on the World of Wonder web series, uh, 
the Viceland series The Trixie and Katya Show, and the Netflix web series I Like to Watch. All of those shows have been co-hosted by his friend and fellow drag performer Trixie Mattel. Together, the pair are prepping the launch of their book, Trixie and Katya's Guide to Modern Womanhood, which will be released this summer. He has made guest appearances on America's Next Top Model, Tales of the City, AJ and the Queen, and the critically ignored Hurricane Bianca 2 from Russia with Hate. Most recently, he won the Drag Royalty Award at the 2020 Queer Tees. He is bizarre, quirky, insane, unwell, charismatic, plucky, demented, and a genius, all rolled into one. He is Yekaterina Petrovna Zamalachikova, but I just call her Katya. Katya, hi. Wow, that was incredible. <laughs> but did I really win a queerty? Yeah, you a did. Wh- wow, <laughs> I had no idea. They never told me. Maybe they did. I don't know. Congratulations. That's huge. (laughs) That's so wonderful. And what an incredibly thorough, investigative introduction that was. You know, they say that it starts with a queerty and that's sort of the the road to the Oscar. Absolutely. Yeah. Queerty, BAFTA, Golden Globe, Cable Ace, and then Oscar. That's the trajectory. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have to start by getting your reaction to RuPaul's Slick It Up, Nacho Libre-inspired blue Uh, latex uh, mask for the season 12 reunion. What in the fuck was that? I'm so confused. I didn't watch the whole thing, so I don't know if there was a proper explanation for it. No. No, no, of course not. No, why would there be? Yeah, yeah. I think that she's insane, maybe? I don't know. I guess you couldn't have somebody come to your house and do your makeup. Apparently not. Raven couldn't make it. But wait, I don't understand. So what was it covering up? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It really, I thought it was going to lend itself to a joke at some point. Like I thought that there was, it was building up to a reference or something. But not only did she never address it, no one else ever addressed it. And then also beyond just like the bizarreness of the look, her general disposition was just very Xanax-y, for lack of a better term. Oh, I don't know. Drag race is just a strange thing now for me. Because I think that for at least a few seasons, maybe four or five, it's definitely become a show that is ripe for parody rather than a parody show itself. Does Mm. that make sense? Absolutely. And so I have a hard time watching it because I can watch it as like a former contestant where I'm like looking at the skeleton of the show or kind of looking at it from behind the scenes. Or when I look at it as just a plain viewer, and not even like from a gay perspective, I'm like, what the fuck is this show? Yeah. It's like weird, man. And kind of corny. I don't know. I still love the girls, so. I really view your season, your first season, season seven, as a really big shift in terms of the beginning of self-producing. Not to say it never happened before that point. You know what? I know I totally agree. And I was talking with Trixie about this. All Stars won and like the first few seasons, when you see like Raven popping off, it's so raw and natural and real and entertaining, of course. You definitely get the sense that there's no mindset of like, how is this going to affect me later? How is this going to be construed by the viewer? How is this going to impact my career? Blah, blah, blah. None of that stuff. It was just like, change your costume, Mimi, change it around, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and that's the version of the show I think that resonates the most with me. It's not to say I don't like the current version. Of course I do. But my sensibilities in terms of reality competition favor that sort of early iteration. Totally. And I think Alaska said it's like we as queer folks can be critical of the show because that's our nature. But it's, of course, just wonderful that it's on period. And that's on period. (laughs) So I want to begin with some gratitude. I last interviewed you. (laughs) 
Let's open with some gratitude. That's a great thing to do. I last interviewed you in November 2017, and it was my first big interview when I was working at Mike.com. And that really gave my bosses at the time the confidence to keep putting me on camera. And you being here today on the show will undoubtedly bring about an onslaught of new listeners. So I just want to start by saying thank you. I'll start with saying you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So you're obviously in LA right now in quarantine. How is your quarantine going? It's fine. I mean, I'm lucky. It's a beautiful day, I think. I haven't been outside yet. I have money saved up and I have like a job and I love being alone. So I don't really have a lot to complain about. A lot of people have it way worse than me. And while I'm not one of those ultra rich celebrities who's like talking via Zoom with Oprah about how the quarantine has really forced her to face her relationships and blah, blah, blah. I'm fine. Kate Hudson, I don't care about your relationships in quarantine. You probably live in a 50,000 square foot mansion where you can literally be so isolated from anybody else if they start to annoy you. You know, of all the things that has happened during this quarantine, I still think that Imagine video with all of those celebrities, it really that it will off. really stay with me for a long time in terms of literally shifting my overall, you know, I've grown up being someone obsessed with celebrity and that moment really shifted my love of celebrity and made me sort of question my own taste because I was like, these are the people that I revere. They yeah. suck. They suck shit. Yeah, I got to tell you, the past few years has been a big awakening for me and like celebrities or artists or like anybody who does something in the public forum and having to contend with their private reality. Basically learning that your favorite musician is a dick or a racist or blah, 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 blah. That Imagine video was like a great primer to kind of contend with the fact that, oh, shit celebrities are often rotten rotten and they're just pretty people i mean look at some of these movies they really bank on the fact that they're just gorgeous to look at they can't say or do anything i relate (laughs) (laughs) you recently tweeted hi friends since many have been asking i'm still very interested in receiving extracted teeth you've kept over the years the larger and more intact the better but i'll take any send here and you left an address um can you give us any update on what you have received thus far nothing so far and i don't want to belabor the point um because i don't want my management company to get so freaked out but i've been fortunate enough to see a lot of teeth over the years. (laughs) I love them. And I'm going to do something with them, you know, one day. I don't know what, but somebody suggested I just go buy some human teeth. I think there's like a museum in New Orleans that sells them. But I was like, I want my fans teeth. I want to know where they're from. You know, I want them to be special. Like I could make a set of dentures or like glue them onto a mouth guard. Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. So let's take a time machine back a bit. You grew up in Marlboro, Massachusetts. Yeah, like the cigarettes. Which you describe as bland but safe. And I know in a past interview, you mentioned that your bedroom became a very sacred place as a result. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, like the quarantine has been making me think about that because I would stay inside a lot and in my bedroom and read and draw and kind of just love to be alone because there just wasn't a lot going on. I was a middle-class white suburb and, uh, you know, I had friends, but I just preferred like an inner world. So it was kind of like a cocoon. I had Christmas lights, blue ones when I get really sad. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I remember getting sad 
and then wanting to stay sad. Like I put on the blue lights and listen to a sad song over and over and over and just cry and love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's very queer. Yeah. I mean, I don't like it anymore because I was a goth kid, like goth presenting. I'm still goth. You know, I remember a day where I was like, I don't want to be sad anymore. So I just stopped. (laughs) And that was that. Yeah. Love that. When did you first get an inkling that you were gay? Oh my God. I've always known. I've always been gay as hell. And it's thankfully never was a huge problem in terms of being bullied or physically assaulted or whatever. But you know, it sucks. Sucks being different. Do you remember your first time kissing a boy? Yes. No. Wait, there was one guy that I kissed up on and I had braces. So it was like, you know, 13 years old or 14, maybe 15. I don't know. And I was in love with him and he's straight, but he was very like open-minded. And that was your first kiss. Yeah. I mean, it was like my favorite one, my favorite first, like I was in love with them. You know, that was like actually in love. Oh, what a feeling. I know you took inspiration from a lot of female comedians like Tracy Hellman and Maria Bamford and Amy Sedaris. Who were the LGBTQ plus celebs that intrigued you in that same way? Ooh, I don't know if I liked any gay people. (laughs) I don't know if I liked any gay people, to be honest. That's a really good question. Like early, who the fuck was gay? Well, like, I guess this would be pre-Rosie coming out. Pre-Ellen? No, well, no, Ellen came out in 96. She came out in 96, so I was 14. Yeah. I I do remember that. Can you describe that? Because we had Cola Scola on the show a couple months ago. Oh, I love him. And he actually talked about the moment when Ellen's coming out was taking place, and he described his father being drunk and passed out on the couch, and Cole described himself pressing up to the television with the sound on just barely audible so that he could hear her come out. And he didn't know at the time that he was gay, but he knew that he needed to hear that, and he didn't know why. Oh, wow. That's dramatic. Yeah, I th- so if I was... So that was 96. Mm-hmm. I was too wrapped up in the Atlantic Games, I think. The Summer Olympics, mm-hmm. the Magnificent Seven, they were my gay heroes. Yeah. You know, those girls. I mean, Carrie Strug, how butch is she? Icon. I was a Dominique Dawes girl. You were Dominique Dawes? Okay. Yeah. She was my girl, but I mean, all, all seven. Come on. All seven are great. And we can't really underestimate the contribution that the less famous girls or the less like talked about girls like J.C. Phelps and Amanda Borden, they really anchored that team. Totally. <laughs> it, this is very dangerous. Do not get me started about gymnastics. But yeah, I mean, I actually went from coming out of the closet. It did the bisexual first thing and then gay because I really wanted to be bisexual because we were goth, like I said, and bisexuality was really the ideal sexual preference for a goth person. The gender roles are very fluid. You know, you want to be like an Anne Rice vampire, just kind of androgynous and ready to fuck whomever. Totally. Who were your like early celebrity crushes? Hmm. I do remember Jonathan Reese Myers in the Velvet Goldmine. And then yeah. I think, I don't know if he was in Titus, but anyways, he, I thought he was so sexy. You know, those big lips and like, uh. yeah. but there was a very pivotal gay moment when my parents had rented this movie called Color of Night. And it's a 
very steamy 90s sexual thriller starring Bruce Willis and Leslie Ann Warren, who plays this crazy- Is that the one where you see his cock? Yes. Okay, I know exactly the one you're talking about. He falls into the pool at the beginning of this very extended love scene with Jane March, I think her name is. She looks like she's 12. It's really creepy. And uh, yeah, she takes off his shorts and you can see the, the wang from the side. And then they get it on for like 10 full minutes after that in a variety of ways and situations. I took that VHS right up to my room and wanked off to it later that night. You know, there used to be that era where like A-list male celebrities would do full frontal nudity. And nowadays that would never happen. But there was a time when like all your faves of that era, um, that was sort of just what happened. Yeah, you don't see those kind of movies anymore though. That's a problem. You know, they don't make sliver anymore. You don't, you don't see like erotic thriller, you know, from A-listers anymore. You get the Avengers. Which we didn't. Which is whatever, yeah. you know. Great for kids. No side dick in that. No side dick at all. I guess you get like animated porn that's inspired by it. So like if you want to watch like Captain America fuck that Groot character, it's on Pornhub somewhere in an animated fashion. (laughs) Totally. So I was talking to our mutual friend, Fina Barbadol, uh, in preparation for today. And I asked her what I should ask you that other people don't often talk about. And one of the things that she pointed out, among many things, was how terrific of a writer you are and have always been. And which makes me all the more excited for your upcoming book. But early on, like, you know, way before this book even, even came to be, how did you develop your writing style and your unique perspective on humor? Well, I read a lot as a kid. I don't read as much now, which is really horrible, but I uh, gave myself a really good education. I read a lot and a lot of crazy shit. Everything from Dave Eggers to like Poppy Z. Bright to like Dostoevsky and um, Tolstoy and then some kind of really gross, dark, crazy, goth kind of uh, subject matter. And then like Oprah's book club. So... I, you know, I've read a lot and I got a good sense of like what kind of voice I think is funny, especially with like memoirs, you know, like I read all of David Sedaris's books and um, Augustine Burroughs. And um, I got a sense of like what kind of voice, gay voice, do I think is interesting? Because I don't think there's anything interesting about being gay in itself. You know, that's like a horrible wake-up call when you realize, like, you get out of the small town, you realize, oh, no, gay people can just be just as awful as regular people. But yeah, so I, I read a lot. And I think that's the most wonderful compliment from Fina. And I have wanted to write forever and just, you know, haven't really done it, certainly in this form. But I'm proud of the book. And I'm, I'm never proud of anything. So I'm excited. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's funny. Like, I will reread stuff that I have forgotten about writing and like it. And that makes me so happy because it's terrifying to have a book out there that's never changeable. Like once you submit the final draft, that's it, Marty. You can't go into the library and change the text anymore. And that scares me. So I'm happy 
with what we did. Yeah, I'll have more questions about the book in a bit, but I want to turn quickly. I had a fan of yours submit a question. Hello, Evan and Katya. It's me, Crystal Method. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. I have a question for Katya. I know that you have a love for Russian gymnasts, and I just wanted to know, what song would you perform um, during the Olympics for your floor routine? Please let me know. Oh, what an angel. What a sweetheart. You know, she's great because you don't really know what's coming next with her, which is really exciting. I would go see her live because I would have no idea what the hell she was going to do or look like. The other girls, I feel like, are perhaps a bit more branded in a way. They all look amazing, but you know kind of what you're going to get, maybe. With her, it's like so out of left field. Like Ebenezer Scrooge the other day with the candle. It's like so wild. I think I'd do Enya. For my Olymp, I would do like um, a, a mashup of Orinoco Flow and Only Time, and then maybe end with I forget what it's called, but yeah, something that's like lyrical, a bit like slow, because I wouldn't want to be one of those like Devil Went Down to Georgia girls like Mochiano. Um, but I would just want to like you know, uh, yeah, that would be my flow routine. <laughs> I love that. So when Katya arrived on the scene, did she come out of you fully formed or was there a gestation period in which you started to tinker with how you wanted her to be presented? No, fully formed. And I completely understand that question. It's like a character queen. So the only thing that has been a work in progress is the look, you know, like the makeup. Obviously, I'm 38 years old and only now do I feel like I have a face that I'm proud of, but that was never really the point. You know, it was like, you get in drag and you're in drag. There aren't like, there was no Instagram, you know? So it's, you don't really spend hours and hours on this like face. I just slapped on a clown face and I got on stage and I did my thing. But in terms of what has been developing is like every presentation of drag that's not Russian Katya that has always been like a work in progress and something that's been developing. Like when I got on the show, I was really only proud of the drag I did as Russian Katya. And now I was like a different thing. I was like Katya, but not Russian. And also just Brian in drag. So it was very confusing. Like what's the point of view? What's the angle? What are people going to like, like or understand and what's going to make me feel semi-satisfied. So it's, I don't know. It's always a different thing. It's tough when you're not just having to grind out the next Ariana hit, which I don't, I'm not hating on that because it's certainly very fun. In Lady Gaga's 2018 Vogue 73 questions video, the host asks her if she ever feels pressure to be on. Without breaking, she stares blankly at the camera, sunglasses on, and says, I don't know what it means to be on. And she uses air quotes when she says on. Let me ask you the same question. Do you ever feel pressure to be on? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I actually spent a long time thinking that I'm only valuable if I'm a spaz. Like if I'm not turned up to like 11 and that that's not acceptable. I think in part because my experience of being on camera, which started with Drag Race was like, it was like, okay, that was great, but more energy. You know, like in the interview room or something, everything is gonna be energetic. That's kind of like what what you want. And then when I did my like web series early on with my friend, same thing. It was like, okay, 
that was good, just more energy. So I kind of like internalized that in such a way that I felt like life was only good if there was energy, like a lot. But it's tough, like you have to have an on and an off switch, but then you start thinking, well, who's the real me? Right. You know what I mean? It's like, ooh. And what about in interview settings like this? Because I think, again, with a lot of these interviews, there's that expectation from people that they are going to get the Katya that they saw on this reality television show. Totally. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my favorite little expressions is expectations are just premeditated resentments. So I always take expectations with a grain of salt or whatever. You know, you really can't control people's expectations. And, but I mean, I'm aware of them in the sense that like, I try to be self-aware and I also try to be like entertaining. I just feel like, what's the point of doing an interview if you're just going to be a, a lump or like a wet blanket? But uh, at the same time, it's, you got to yeah, keep it real, I suppose. I don't even know what that means anymore. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Before we talk about Drag Race, let's take a break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. So you auditioned for Drag Race for the first time in season three. That's correct. Back yeah. at that point, you know, there'd only been two iterations of the show, and it was by no means the, the mega hit that it is today. What appealed to you about the show at that time? I think at that point, there was like this very low ceiling on success in drag, and it kind of blew that ceiling apart. And now you could be on television, and, you know, of course, there wasn't the huge touring industry set up at that point, but somehow people in the next state could know who you were. And, you know, that was really cool. I think I watched season two with Jujubee, who was a friend and a colleague. And I was like, oh, I think I could do that. And at this point, the girls weren't wearing like $3,000 wigs. And, you know, they all looked like they just came from the mall. So that was like reassuring. We had Raja on the show recently, and she revealed that she has not gone back and watched her season at all. Until recently, I have to say, I just saw on her Facebook page that she posted saying that she was watching it for the first time. I'm curious, have you watched your season at all in the subsequent years? Uh, no, not really. I've watched it enough, I feel like. I don't, really, I don't generally revisit episodes of Drag Race. I've seen clips, for sure, more than once. I mean... I don't really like to brag or to my own horn, but I think Reggie Rochu is like the best group number that the show has ever produced, at least in the top three. So I've seen that a bunch of times and I still love it. 
Катерина Петровна, замолочикова, бачуде, ческозми, Катя. Especially since like the one in this past season was so corny. Yeah. And I mean, all those girls are amazing, but none of them sing. And I don't want to listen to a musical number with four non-singers. That's just an advertisement for a Las Vegas show that I can't even see right now because of the quarantine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like so strange. You know, I do want to say one thing about Red You Wrote You that I, because I too, I agree with you. I think it is the show's pinnacle achievement. I think that from that number, you can come away from it not knowing who any of you are before and have a sense of who you are and what your drag is. Absolutely. I mean, it was everybody like doing their thing at their best, looking fantastic. You know, we all looked great. It played to everybody's strength. It allowed them to bring their cards to the table and it all worked cohesively as a unit. Like it, it's a great song and it's a great number. And I think it's what I love about Drag Race is like, okay, everybody's doing their own type of drag, but let them go home and figure out what their best thing is, come back and apply it. And then there you go. Yeah, It's not like memorize this or try to act this. It's like, no, it's like, okay, get on stage and be your best. Yeah. It's so good. So you only had, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, a few months between filming for season seven and All Stars 2. Yeah. And so I imagine on some level, you kind of have not a vendetta, but you have a plan in terms of this is how I came off the first, not you, not even just you. I mean, just anyone having a, a return to television in that sense. You've had this opportunity to see how you were perceived by the fans. And so you can kind of course correct, or you can kind of play into that or play against that willingly. Yeah. Did you have any sort of intentions going into All Stars 2 in terms of how you wanted to change people's perceptions of you? No, I just wanted to add to them. Like I didn't have a, uh, I'm grateful that I didn't have an ax to grind or like a, a ship to re, you know, to, what do you call that? Re-course or whatever. I just wanted to show more. Like I, I felt like I hadn't performed to the best of my ability in my season. So that was really good in the sense that I was like, oh, I think I can actually be better. So I got a chance to do that. And I think I did, but yeah, it's tough when you try to produce yourself, you really can't control how people think about you. Yeah. Let's talk about money because I feel like uh, money is a subject that is just, I have a really hard time talking about it. Um, Why? Just um, Money was something I grew up being made to feel uncomfortable about. Like, well, that's how they keep the poor down, man. We hear a lot about, you know, what some of the girls spend now in preparation yeah. to get on the show. <sighs> but one conversation I don't think we hear enough about is sort of what being on this show can reap by way of a long-term career. So you come off the show. How did you begin to monetize your newfound fame? Mm. You just work. You just, like, I mean, I didn't have a plan or financial plan or um, goals or anything. Of course, it's different for all the girls, you know, the level of popularity, of course, plays a big part of, you know, what you're able to bring home financially. But, you know, you can be a millionaire. You can be a millionaire from Drag Race. Several girls have done it. It's incredible. Like, it's nuts. Uh, many of the people who were able to achieve national and international success before the show have not made a million dollars. You know, and Drag Race is like, here, bam, 
you can be a millionaire and you got to work a lot and you got to be smart about it, but it's possible. And some of the paychecks that a lot of the girls are able to bring home are insane. Even just from endorsements. Right. Like Instagram, you know, fucking Klarna. Ugh, stuff like that is like sometimes six figures. It all depends on who you are, of course, and blah, blah, blah. But it's possible and it's it's really never been possible before. Now you have a lot of different revenue streams, right? You have like Netflix, for instance, you have you're on Cameo, you have your tours, you have your merch, etc. And again, I'm gonna ask you this. And if you're not comfortable talking about it, just oh, say, it's fine. but which avenue for you makes you the most money? Well, it depends. Touring is very profitable. I often forget that I have merchandise <laughs> um, until the check comes. And I'm like, oh shit, that's right. I sell t-shirts. So obviously that revenue stream could be um, broadened a bit. Yeah, the touring is probably the most f- profitable, I think. I made a lot of money on tour. It's so funny. I, I really don't feel comfortable disclosing the amount. And I don't know why. I feel like maybe because I don't want to be labeled like a rich person. <laughs> because I've grown up hating rich people and I remember the first time I spent I spent money like I thought a rich person did like I went into Gucci and I bought a woman's suit with my credit card in Canada it was nine thousand dollars I think and it went through and I was like my whole body started to shake and then I was like oh my god this is just like I took a hit of something and and then it went away and I was like oh okay, that doesn't make me happy. (laughs) So I stopped, you know, I didn't do it anymore. It's crazy. It's all relative. And what's interesting to me is like how quickly an individual can acclimate to a new set of circumstances, like how quickly the proletariat can become the enemy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And be okay with it. You know, like, Yeah. Let me ask you something. That's how Republicans are made. (laughs) Indeed. And how they thrive. (laughs) Yeah. Let me ask you a question on a similar, similar note. You know, fame happened to you as it does with many in the cast now very quickly. How did fame impact you? And I don't mean miss fame. I mean, your fame. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you. Well, my screen time went up. I remember like I was at Ginger Minja's house in Florida when the season seven promo first rolled out and our identities were unveiled to the world and the two of us were so involved in our individual phone screens that I had to change my data plan immediately I think I racked up like a hundred dollar bill that night just refreshing Twitter and like looking and seeing and all this stuff and I don't know how a person deals with that. I mean, I feel like I was older. So I was like 35 or 32 or something like that. Violet was 21 or something. That's a different experience. This was like the first time she tried to do something and then she won it. She hadn't endured like years and years of humiliation (laughs) and rejection and, you know, just regular life and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. Fame is weird. It's so strange. It really does make you think you're important and you're not. You have a kind of fame that really intrigues me in how devout your fan base is. So for instance, you recently tweeted, gay people love to listen to music and 90,000 people like that tweet. 
that boggles my mind. I was just looking at that and I was like, that's the one? But Twitter is weird. Twitter is weird. The cause of virulence in a tweet is, is often mysterious. But I think my level of fame is ideal because it's gay famous for the most part, although now it's more than that. But it's not like Julia Roberts fame. It's just enough so that life is easier, but it's not more difficult. I don't have to worry about going anywhere. In fact, I'm often delighted to because someone might recognize me and make my day better or make my experience run more smoothly or like give me a benefit of some kind, but it's low key enough that it's never like a a hassle. You know, you don't get mobbed. You're not like BTS, that Korean pop group, you know, you're not going to get like strangled by a woman's thighs in the middle of the street. So I think it's like the perfect amount of fame because it's like, oh, you have opportunity. You've got lots of chances. You've got lots of revenue streams. And it's not like a pain in the ass. What about ego? Because I imagine it can be difficult to keep one's ego in check when you have, not to mention this fandom, but as we just talked about, all this money coming in that you might not be accustomed to and it's coming in quickly and, and, and growing and growing, I imagine. How do you maintain, you don't want to maintain an ego. How do you avoid having an ego? Well, that is a question and a topic that I had long before Drag Race started to grapple with because I was, I'm not to sound like a douche, but I was very interested by necessity in spiritual concepts. You know, destroying the ego was always like an interest of mine (laughs) because that was like the way to find peace because the individual identity was something that needs to be like faced in order to achieve enlightenment in certain like spiritual traditions, like Eastern ones, whatever, you know, I had been studying to be a yoga teacher and I was like, um, so all that stuff, like the ego, it interest in the ego, being a person, how to be happy, how to be fulfilled, what are spiritual concepts, what's deeper, what's more true or more enduring or what's valuable. All those things that were like really front and center for me way before drag race So that was never really like a huge problem. It did happen though. And I did like allow my ego to get insane. It's a tough thing because you really do think that you're important when people say it to you. It's tricky. You could go online and read hundreds of wonderful comments. Literally people saying, you are the best person that has ever existed. And you can't internalize that because of course it's not true. But so you just have to extract the beauty and the positivity and the love out of that message and use that and then not let it pile up into this weird monstrous ego thing. It's a strange thing. And you also of course have to deal with the negativity, which if you have an overflow of positive ones, the negative ones really stick out. And what an interesting thing that amid a pile of wonderful, beautiful, positive comments, you find the needle in the haystack that's like, you know, you actually don't have any discernible talent. Why do people love you so much? God, you're annoying. And you're like, oh, they're right. They know the real me. (laughs) It's wild. It's wild. What is your favorite Julia Roberts movie? I think it'd have to be Pretty Woman. She's fantastic in that. I hate some of them. Notting Hill, for example, I find to be repellent. I think the story is 
stupid bullshit. I don't like any of the characters. I, I don't find Hugh Grant to be charming in it. <laughs> I also recently watched Closer and I thought that was like out of control. I'd have to say Pretty Woman. She's magnetic. Do you have any feelings about Stepmom? I know that you do. <laughs> I watched Stepmom on a plane. I, I wasn't really paying attention to it. But that clip you sent, oh my God, that really tugged on the heartstrings. <laughs> it's like just such a great movie. I was going to make my Zoom background the house from the movie because that's like how impactful of a film that has been in my life. Um, wow. Yeah, that performance. And also her beauty, like her beauty in that movie between that and my best friend's wedding. Oh my God. Those two movies. In my best friend's wedding, when she is introducing Rupert Everett and says, he came here to fuck me. It's just so fabulous. Yeah. OG so bad fab- yeah. yeah. And, oh God, I gotta tell you, like, it is really interesting to revisit some movies you've loved or thought you loved or thought were good. And then you go back and you're like, Jesus Christ, what a load of shit. I just watched He's Not That Into You tonight or last night. Oh my God. God, I hated it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you were expecting with that one. That's uh, a, a known bad film. I know, but I think I was, it had so many stars and like, you know. But that, see, this goes back to the Imagine video though, because it's like seeing lots of stars now, that to me is a repellent. I'm like, they had to get lots of stars because there was no idea There's here. nothing else. Yeah. yeah. It's like they're banking on people saying, oh, it's Drew Barrymore. Right. For like 30 seconds to ignore the horrible dialogue. Yes. I mean, it just really does not hold up. And also there's a lot of like very specific technology that's, it's about the phone and whatever, and these flip phones. It's just a really bad movie. And Scarlett Johansson's hair is horrible. And you know, it's just, (laughs) there's a lot going on. What are your thoughts on Sarah Michelle Gellar? I don't have too many. You know, it's funny because my appreciation of Buffy comes from the movie with Christy Swanson, who is now a Republican troll a la James Woods. Mm-hmm. And she's a persecuted figure of like Hollywood right-wing celebrities. And I'm like, listen, lady, you suck shit. Take a hike. But I could still tell you the gymnastic combination that her character did on the mat in the gym. You know what I mean? So yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't really know. I'm not too familiar with her. I've never watched the TV series, but I, she seems cool. If you could start a feud with any Rue Girl or Drag Race guest judge right here today, who would it be and why? I think it'd be Michelle. Michelle Visage about breasts. Yeah, something to do with breasts or maybe like nutrition or something like that. Yeah, maybe we'd get into like a very heated goop related pseudoscience versus rational thought debate that would just end in mutual destruction. I love that. Yeah. When was the last time you spoke to RuPaul? That would be, I think when I, I did her podcast again, it was, I don't remember when it was. It was semi-recent, but I, oh my God, I love Ru. Like, I love talking to him, seeing him. I was walking down the street in West Hollywood and I saw him in a restaurant and he made out contact with me and then he gave me the finger. And it's just like so fun. In terms of like celebrity sightings, I've gotten to meet enough that you realize, oh, they're just regular people. So you just want to meet a good one. And Rue's always a good one to meet. But I saw Jennifer Lopez at the gym (laughs) right before quarantine. 
right before quarantine. It was like two or three days before all the gyms closed. And I worked out right next to her. Right next to her, Evan. You have no idea. I want a Hustler sequel with you in it. Did you like that movie? Did you uh, like, can you like- divorce yourself from the gay panic of like, you know what I mean? Because there's a yeah. lot of gay hysteria about stuff yeah. that like years later we'll revisit and be like, oh, it was good, but it didn't deserve the amount of hype that we all hyped it up for. Yeah, it's a good plane movie. Like I really enjoyed watching it on a trip from LA back to New York. Thank you. Yeah. I saw it in the theater and I thought it was a bit slow. She was fantastic. Fantastic. Have you ever seen Roxanne Gay's tweet about her review of Hustlers? No. And I love Roxanne Gay. Yeah, she has this amazing tweet. It's like three sentences and it ends by saying, good work all around. As for Constance Wu, needs to work on her craft. I agree. I agree. And I thought like Julia Stiles was underused. Yeah. It didn't have the the pizzazz that I thought it was going to have. But goddamn was a... J-Lo, great. Yeah. Do you want me to read the tweet? Yeah, Yeah, read the tweet. tweet. Just saw Hustler's movie. Overall, I enjoyed it. Jennifer Lopez was brilliant and a real awards contender. And also, what exactly is her workout regimen? She looks flawless. Constance Wu tried hard and had some great moments, but needs to work on her craft. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Roxanne always, she's like, delivers the sucker punch. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's spot on. She's one of those people that, I would always want to know what you thought about something. Totally. And I will recalibrate my own opinion about something based off of hers because I'll assume that my initial opinion was wrong. I do the same thing, Evan. This is something that I think about quite a lot, actually, because it gets to the point where you have access to so many interesting and reliable, valuable pillars of cultural criticism that you can kind of forget to have your own opinion or your own voice. And you get afraid, at least I do, of like speaking on something before you've heard other people do it. Yep. But yeah, she Roxanne Gay is continuously one of those people that like, oh man, she's just so smart and cool. Yeah. Circling back to the book, what was the process like of writing a book? Because it's an extremely ambitious undertaking. And as you said earlier, there's a finite nature to writing a book that it will exist out in the world forever. Forever. It was really difficult. I had to write most of it while I was on tour. And that was next to impossible, mostly because just in terms of like being productive on tour, it's a whole different story. Like, I don't even remember that email exists when I'm on tour. I just kind of like do what's in front of me and I exist in this weird bubble. So I was having constant anxiety about deadlines and I was late for everyone. You know, our editor is a fucking angel. She's so fabulous. Well, so it was difficult. It was really hard. And having to try to write comedy when you're not feeling funny is one of the most laborious, lugubrious tasks you could ever imagine. And you have to have a lot of like faith in yourself that, no, I am funny. I just maybe not at this moment because I'm not funny right now, doesn't mean that I'm never funny. It, it's like you get the whole drama. But, you know, it's not like Moby Dick. We didn't have to write 10 million words. And there's a lot of pictures. And thank God they're fantastic. They are. They're really good. So it's just really difficult. I was not too familiar with like the rewriting process because I'm used to delivering something at the last minute, which is going to be the thing. And then you move on. But after three and four and five drafts of stuff, you're like, oh, this is how really good stuff gets written. You just do it. 
And then you go back and then you go back again and again. But it's that initial laying it down, no matter how bad or incomplete, it's tough. It's really hard. So I want to wind down by asking you about your friendship with Trixie, your longtime collaborator. In her documentary, Moving Parts, that is, and bear with me here, the question's not going to go... Okay, sure, sure. Go left. Um, so in, in her documentary, Moving Parts, the disintegration of your friendship is chronicled. And then at the end of the film, we see the two of you getting the train back on the tracks. Um, what has your relationship with Trixie and sticking together as friends and collaborators, despite rough times and smooth times, taught you? Not to sound corny, but she's taught me the real power and value of forgiveness because I don't know what I would have done in her situation. So I went crazy for a while. And I mean, a lot of it was due to drugs, but a lot of it can't be summed up as like, oh, this person transformed into this other person whom I don't recognize because that wasn't all of it. Like it was, some of it was kind of based in reality, which made it even more tricky. Bottom line is she just kind of waited it out and forgave me. And that is like really incredible because like, I don't really know what I would have done in her situation. I don't know. It, it was a really horrible time and she went through a lot of horrible stuff and I had never been in my life the villain. You know, like I had never really done bad shit to somebody. Like the worst it ever got was I would just write somebody off or ignore them or just drift away. It was always negligence. It was never like abuse. All of a sudden I was this abusive force and I'm like, oh my God. You know, looking back, you have to take time. Time actually really does heal things or provide the opportunity for healing but you don't know it then. At least I didn't. You're like, this is going to stay horrible forever. And I was always amazed because I'm not a fighter. I don't, I'm always amazed at like couples who fight and then they're okay in six hours because time passes and your feelings change. But I've never fought before. It's, I think, just a wonderful testament to her um, coolness that she's like, you know, I could do this alone, of course she can. She does. She has so many different like facets of her career that are so successful on her own. But she's like, I'll wait around for this fucking jackass to get his shit together. <laughs> you know? And so, because I like what we do together. And I think she does too. Me too. Before I ask my last question, Alden, I wanted to give you the chance. Is there anything you wanted to ask Katya? I was curious, as you've become your own entrepreneur with this whole career, like you've gone on to create your own opportunities. You even had a podcast for a while, co-hosted a podcast for a while. And I'm just curious how transitioning from like the performer using this ecosystem of drag race to creating these own opportunities for yourself, what that has taught you and like the transition that you've made in that whole process of your career. Well, I think the the big thing that, you realize is you don't do it by yourself. There's so many people that are now a part of the picture. It's a huge collaborative effort. You're working now with managers, publicists, editors, assistants. You're like hiring and firing people. You're having to put on so many different hats in using like mental processes that were previously not really explored, having to function like a business person in the sense that you're like, you step away from the creative 
thing to like evaluate, okay, are people functioning in the way that I want them to? Am I, it's just like a whole different thing. It's hard. I don't really like it. I'm still, I'm really a flake. Like <laughs> you came through today. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, what else have I got going on? <laughs> um, but it's tough. Like, you know, I don't know. It's uh, you got to be really on the ball. Well, you don't, you don't have to be anything. This is assuming that you want to be successful. You know, you just kind of do what you do at the end of the day and then you get what you get. I mean, it's only as good as you put into it. This might be due to quarantine, but I just have a great amount of respect for queens like you who I can pursue through through going directly to them and getting mm-hmm. this all scheduled and making it happen. There are, uh, I don't want to, I'm not going to obviously name names, but there are right. just people out there that really make you go through hoops for certain things. And sure. it's like, it doesn't need to be that hard. We can all no. make time for the people we want to make time for. Well, that was one of the lessons from he's just not that into you. Oh, God. <laughs> um, you know. And, you know, it's true. I think that those hoops exist for a reason because a lot of times you got to shield yourself from the noise because you can't really suss out who is worth your time necessarily. But on the other hand, it's like you do make time for people that you want to and there's really no excuse for it. Yeah. It's interesting, especially now in quarantine. What fucking excuse do I have to not call people back? None. I still don't do it though. Uh. Yeah. I get it. So in a March interview with NPR's Terry Gross on her show Fresh Air, Gross asked RuPaul about the 60 acres of land he owns in Wyoming. Oh, no, 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 no. 60,000 acres, RuPaul corrected Gross. That's like a national park, Gross exclaimed. What are you doing with them? Do you have like horses, cattle, a farm? RuPaul explained that 21st century ranch is really land management, which he went on to describe as, quote, leasing the mineral rights to oil companies and selling water to oil companies and then leasing the grazing rights to different ranchers. Though Gross didn't press him any further, many understood this to be an admission that RuPaul was in fact fracking. What you fracking? <laughs> I'm just curious what you make of not just the admission, but the phenomenon that has been born out of this story throughout the Drag Race fandom. It's just become an obsession. Yeah, it's hysterical. Somebody sent me um, a screenshot of the Nacho Libre of face mask of Rue, but in the background was a bunch of oil rigs. (laughs) It's funny because I wasn't surprised by that because Rue is a capitalist. Rue's never maintained anything other than being a diehard capitalist. And so it's not like a huge shock. You know that quote, wear a suit from his masterclass? Have you seen that? Oh my God. You want to make money? Put on a suit. Like Capitalist 101. Yeah, exactly. It's like, have you ever considered that you could just stop being poor? <laughs> you know, maybe you don't want it enough. <laughs> I think that people have, again, like a lot of, well, let's say this, maybe the, the expectations that come from Rue's persona sometimes clash with the realities of the private life. You know, yeah. you know everybody say love doesn't mean socialism. I mean, it doesn't. Everybody say love means everybody say love. Like there's, so a lot of times I think people kind of try to find hypocrisy or inconsistency where there's actually none. That's a really good point. Seriously, like Rue has always maintained 
uh, a level of messaging via her public persona that has been broadly about love and the ego and all this stuff. And it doesn't really like, I think people make assumptions sometimes, you know? Yeah. No, I'm not saying she's perfect. She's certainly not perfect. But I think that's what the thing is, is people hold her to a, like a perfect standard, yes. you know? But the fracking thing is hysterical. It's amazing. Riddle me this. Do you think Rue, and I, just because of both Rue's status as like being this superstar, but also just being a person of a certain age, do you think Rue is plugged in at all to the conversations that people have on places like Twitter and Reddit? That's a good question. I think so. But I also would imagine that someone at his level and at his age and at the point in his career, it just all comes down to time. I don't think Rue's a person who's really scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, you know? And I think about myself, like, I've really become unplugged and unglued from the very online discourse in a lot of way, you know, where like, if you miss three days, you miss a whole cycle, a whole cycle of like the introduction of a thing, the frenzy over it, and then the aftermath, like it's gone. So, you know, the fracking thing is like a good example of that. It's like, it could just be forgotten in a week. Yeah. So there are tweets that go up now where people just be like, just woke up, who's canceled today? Oh, exactly. And I feel like that sort of epitomizes the the state of things. Absolutely, it does. Because I almost missed the Lana Del Rey thing. Totally. And I was so disturbed last year when I was on tour by her reaction to this Ann Powers piece. It was like a, a NPR music journalist. She did a whole deep dive on uh, the latest album and her other works. And Lana fired back in the most aggressively bratty way that discolored my perception of her as an artist to the extent that I almost felt uncomfortable listening to her songs, which was ridiculous. And then she went on to fucking dig her own grave even further, at least in my estimation of her, just by revealing her basic white bitchiness. Right, but then it's like, she could put out a new album tomorrow with hits on it, and it would be like, all of this business, people would move on and be like, oh, we love the new album. It's like, yeah, it's the, I, the cycles happen so quickly. They do. And it's also like the, you got to like sort of weigh the severity of the, the actions that are yes. being called into question. It's not like she's fucking kids. Like Michael Jackson was, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's different when I listen to Thriller and then immediately think of an adult man rimming children. Yes. Then it is like, you know, listening to ultraviolence and then, you know, thinking about, oh, a rich white girl might be a little bit unsophisticated in her views about race. Because here's the thing, like, she's wrong and that's okay. But it's hard to learn in real time publicly. Yes, but this goes back to the earlier conversation about ego because it's like, I'm curious what compelled her to log on that day and say, these thoughts in my head of mine, it's time that the world know them. That's the part of it all. Save it for your fucking poetry book, ho. (laughs) Save it for your fucking poetry book. You know, a good rule of thumb is, you know, if you don't have a publicist and you're in the public eye, if it's not worth writing on parchment with a quill, fucking save it, Nancy. Because, you know, if you write it out, 
in cursive letters. And you're like, why the fuck am I saying this? Or this complete thought is incomplete and doesn't actually make sense, which a lot of the continuation of her argument, which happened like in Instagram comments, is not complete. Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. You know, there's backpedaling involved and whatever, whatever. But I'm just like, oh God, does she not have a publicist? And also, you're not being persecuted, ho. You're wildly successful. Where's this coming from? Talk to your therapist. I don't know. Totally, totally. I want to thank you so much. I want to encourage people to check out this book. It comes out this July. Yeah, July 14th. You got to pre-order it. Oh, you got to pre-order it. And the great thing is you have all summer and you're going to be spending your summer doing nothing else. So you have all the time to to read this book. Learn how to be a woman. And I think if nothing else came out of this conversation, I think a lot did, but you are such a great speaker that I think it begets anyone that's wondering, oh, what's Katya like as a writer? If if you are one-tenth of the, the writer that you are a speaker, then we can be sure that this book is just a must-read. Oh, well, thank you so much. That is very nice of you to say. Before I let you go, tell me, did this go okay for you? I'm always curious how it feels to be interviewed. I mean, I love it. <laughs> But I'm like so narcissistic. I love talking about myself. So anybody who's half as articulate and engaged as you wants to talk to me, I'm down. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you. It was a real pleasure. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced by Alden Peters with additional editing by Ryan Killian Krause. We just want to take one more moment to thank our Patreon subscribers who make this possible. If you are not subscribing to our Patreon, do it today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.